Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today is Fine Woodworking editor Asa Christiana. And later on, we're going to be joined by art director Michael Pekovich, but that's not all. And some special guests, which we will not name right now. We will reveal we'll shortly. Reveal them? Yes. All right. Okay, we'll reveal them. I'm, I'm down with that. Uh, but before we get started, just a few pieces of business to take care of. If you like the podcast and you want to see it continue in the future, then please leave a five-star rating in iTunes. And as always, if you're feeling especially nice, a written comment would be great. Um, We can't keep this ship going without your tangible support. So let us know you like the show, and please spread the word. And if your comment is especially pithy, that's a woodworking term, indeed, um, then we might even read it on the show. Absolutely. So uh, bigger and better things, Asa, we are recording sort of live from Fine Woodworking Live, our very first live event. It's really exciting. Um, We're mid-show right now, and I'm like a proud papa because this show has been in the making for a couple years now, this first inaugural, first ever. It's a first for our whole company and Fine Woodworking. It's definitely a first for Fine Woodworking, and it's going great. People are having a great time. Um, We're going to bring one of the attendees in a little later in the show. We got some special guests coming in for you, and... It's just uh, so great to see it all happening um, and we'll see the people you know, getting to know each other. So often we work in solitude in our own shops, and it's really nice to get together and share this passion we all have for woodworking. Uh, and uh, it's been fantastic. The teachers are great. Um, the venue has been good. There's a little couple hiccups with construction and things like that. Yeah, that's but, been no big deal. Oh, yeah, those are just little tiny wrinkles. But... It's been fantastic, and it's so nice to, uh, to see it finally happening. And it's way overdue. We should have done this years ago. It's such a great way to, uh, for people to meet each other and for them to meet some of the folks they see in the magazine. And uh, it's been fantastic. Well, for anybody who... Of course, I would say that, but it's true. For anyone who's, who's listening and doesn't know that much about Fine Woodworking Live, so we, we've got a whole bunch of different classes, like Michael Fortune on Five Ways to Bend Wood, uh, Garrett Hack on hand planes. Garrett Hack on all his decorative, decorative details. details as yep. well. um, you've got Matt sharpening. Kenny, you've got bench, bench accessories. Jigs. Yep, sharpening. You've got Mike Pekovich's super finish, last finish you'll ever need. You've got Steve Latta talking about all the forms of traditional construction, and he's got all these dry fit case pieces he pulls apart and shows you all the parts inside. There's a hands-on design workshop. Um, we've got we're we're out in the shop taking apart band saws and table saws and showing you how to make yours work better. Um, it just goes on on Michael Fortune five ways to bend wood. He's out on the pavilion steam bending wood and people are pulling on the compression strap and uh, it's uh, it's he been brought, awesome. Uh, he brought four a four inch piece of wood that he bent into a I guess it's four or five inches across. He bent into a ninety, which kind of blew me away. Unbelievable. He's a wood bending wizard. Awesome. Um, Fantastic. And like you said, we're going to have a, a couple of people that we'll mention in a few minutes. Yeah, since we're here on. at the show, we've got an, an opportunity to bring in some very special guests. So we'll do that in a minute. So uh, anyway, on Hold to on. the... Uh, just wait till this guy passes. It's going to take a while. Just let wait, it we can't. It's, that's all I'm hearing. Yeah, but who cares? So we'll just talk He's, about it. We'll just, a sec. He's just... We could just... She just said their video. Yeah. Okay. Um, we should uh, we back it up, up a bit. Just pick it up from. Um, oh, because, so because we're, we're here. Yeah. Right. Okay. Ready. So because we're here at Fine Woodworking Live, doing Shop Talk Live, we have we're very live, live people. We have live people that we can bring into this semi-live show. Some very special guests. We're going to bring in an attendee, and uh, you know, attendee. That's a fancy word for someone who came to the show. Yes. Anyway. Um, so we're going to have some fun. But let's do a couple, let's do an, a question or two okay. before we uh, get started. All right. Well, the first one uh, came in from Mark Nikoluski, and this is a topic that we've all bounced around in the office many a time. And we talked about it on the last podcast we had. Yep. And it, once again, it concerns contemporary furniture. And uh, Mark wrote, your most recent discussion on design styles has compelled me to reach out to you about something that's bugged me for years. As much as I love the magazine, I'd love to see more and better modern contemporary pieces featured. I found that when they are presented, they too often fall into the wacky category with excessive curves, crazy finishes, or marquetry. And readers less familiar with the style may be pleasantly surprised to see how much classic modern design 
has in common with the Shaker approach to furniture building. Honesty, respect for materials, simplicity. Plus, you're sure to get some points with those Brooklyn hipsters with unnecessary beards. And Mark <laughs> Did he also, say that last part? He did. did. No, he absolutely that? did. He did? That's in good. reference to He's... one of our recent episodes. Um, and he included <laughs> some photos of an armoire that, uh, that he had been working on. That's yeah. the kind of thing that he's talking about. But So what's the big deal with contemporary furniture and fine woodworking? Well, he's right that, the, that there's a lot of parallels with Shaker furniture. Um, you can trace, uh, trace modern back to Danish modern and mid-century modern where they were very influenced. They were influenced by the Shakers. Um, and he's absolutely right that today's modern contemporary furniture, when it's sort of clean and minimalist, owes a lot to Shaker and a lot to mid-century modern as well, Danish uh, modern. Um, we do contemporary in the magazine as much as we can. So what that means is we do have a pretty tight focus in fine woodworking, which is furniture and boxes, you know, uh, small boxes. We don't do like what, luthery, you know, guitar instrument making. Mm-hmm. We don't delve into, you know, uh, carving figurines and certain other boat building. We don't, we focus on furniture, but even inside that seemingly narrow focus, that's a really big tent. And in that tent, you have the people who uh, really aren't interested in anything that was built after the year 1799. And then you have the folks who really love Shaker or all they build is arts and crafts. And then you have the people like this guy who uh, wrote in, what's his name again? Mark Nikoluski. Like Mark, who um, really, I actually, or, I'm like Mark. My favorite style of furniture is contemporary modern stuff. But as the person who's, you know, one of the main guys in charge of content, we know from our surveys and, and uh, whenever we do articles on various topics, we know that that is a segment of our readership, but... Um, for example, just to be uh, plain about it, Shaker and Arts and Crafts are by far number one. And after that, in second place, I'd put period and contemporary. Um, those are you know, right behind. But that's four kind of pretty distinct groups. There's a lot of overlap. So we have to be careful how much contemporary we do. We try to do enough to do a good representation. Um, I actually think that, um, you know, to keep guys like me and Mark happy, but... I actually think that he makes a good point. Specifically what he's saying is that when we have done contemporary, maybe it's been too over the top. Um, the really nice armoire he showed is very simple and straightforward. And I think he mentions later in his question that it really lets the wood grain show through. So when you have a minimalist design, you can really let the wood be the star. And it's not battling you know, decorative details and inlay and arches and curves. So he makes a really good point that something really clean... Um, uh, in contemporary might be a good turn for us. And this is kind of interesting. His piece has, what are these, like slip matched? Yeah, these there's a big doors? book. There's a big, they... uh, there's a big giant book match. It's it looks match. like cherry with sapwood. And he it. kept the sapwood. Which is beautiful when you do a book match. So the two giant doors on his armoire have stripes of sapwood running down both sides in a big giant book match. It's probably veneer, if I had to guess. I'm, in fact, I'm pretty sure it's veneer. So... Um, oh, he makes a really good point, and I wish we could do all contemporary, but that would be a much smaller magazine, and then we wouldn't be able to basically afford to do the beautiful photography and all this stuff. You, the more you narrow it down, the more you narrow down your audience, the less uh, financially capable you are of doing the level of quality that we do, because your audience... Is just too small to pay for it. So that's why when you see little things like Model Airplane or these little magazines, they can't bring you the same level of beautiful exploded drawings we do. So having that big tent is actually integral to us delivering the quality product that we deliver. I have a feeling, I kind of wonder if the reason why uh, Shaker and Arts and Crafts, and then to a certain extent, uh, period, are so much more popular for woodworkers than contemporary is the romance level. There's something romantic about... History. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And there's no... Not that I dislike the style or anything, but there's... I don't... Personally, I feel like there's nothing romantic about contemporary furniture as far as the idea of building it in the shop and so on and so forth. Like when you're building a shaker piece... The romance of making isn't quite the same. It's totally But for me, see, the thing is you may not be a big contemporary furniture lover because... I'm not. I admit Because for... I appreciate it. See, you're missing what folks like Mark and I feel. Like I could almost... 
uh, get well up when I see beautiful contemporary pieces. To me, that's the height. I like stuff that's artistic and sculptural. So for me, it is super romantic. But it's the eye of the beholder. I think there's something truth in what you said. That that just points out that it's really the eye of the beholder. I you know I know what you mean though. I think just to get into it, I think the reason that shaker and arts and crafts are so popular is that they're traditional yet they're rectilinear, so you have 90-degree joints. People look at it and they say, I could do that. Also, they fit into almost any house. You know, you might not fit a Queen Anne table into your house, but you could probably sit a shaker table in there in almost any house in the United States or North America, and it would look right at home. So, um, anyway, enough said about that. Well, should we, uh, I think it's about time we bring in our guests, and uh, we're basically, we're we're bringing in uh, Chris Bexford and Nick Offerman from NBC's Parks and Rec, and also a diehard woodworker, so let's bring these guys in. Strange things happen when you hold a live event, and something strange has happened here. We've got Nick Offerman sitting next to me, uh, TV actor and comedian and uh, woodworker. I always put woodworker first on my blogs. I put it second for Nick. Woodworker, husband, actor. Dentureware. Yeah. <laughs> Remember those old commercials where the person would list dentureware as if that was a credential? That would be denture cream. Uh, oh, yes. Woodworker, actor, husband, saxophonist, human being, <laughs> dentureware. All right, so Nick's obviously here, and someone he's really looked up to in his woodworking career happens to also be here, Chris Bexford, who uh, has been writing articles for the magazine for a lot of years, and, and it happens to be Nick's favorite woodworker. So Nick, um, real quick, how did you get, how did you transition from sort of uh, being a guy who worked on a, grew up near, on a farm and built some scenery and then fell in love with Chris Bexford? How did that happen? How did that romance come to <laughs> um, My wife doesn't know about this. Yeah, yeah. let's keep uh, this between us, just please. <laughs> don't, let, don't let this get out to the public. Um, I, uh, I built a lot of scenery in Chicago in the 90s and developed shop skills. And uh, it was a great supplementary income to my main focus, which was acting and plays. But I really fell in love with working in a shop, uh, particularly the table saw. was kind of the fanciest, uh, most jig-laden thing we would get to in the world of scenery. Because there's no place for joinery, there's no place for beautiful work, everything is the facade of beauty. And so um, it, was a, it was a very fast, sloppy, and a lot of sheet goods. Uh, I have a lot of masonite stored in my bronchial tubes. Um, and uh, then I moved to Los Angeles. The film business kind of took me out there. And I discovered there was no theater community like there was in Chicago or New York. And so the, the income from building scenery was not available. And I spent a couple of years kicking around uh, doing handyman work and somebody wanted a deck and I did some Frank Lloyd Wright sort of panels in the uh, in the railing of the deck and those were my first lap joints that I cut on a table saw with a miter gauge and was incredibly excited about those and um, and then I built a couple of cabins for people and I had by this time I had seen the green and green houses in Pasadena and really been swept away uh, and started reading about the arts and crafts movement and, and reading about the green and green uh, working methods and, and sort of their influences. I saw some of those cabins. Some of those are like Asian style, right? Like <laughs> yoga huts and sure. stuff like that, right? Or was there yeah, that's indeterminate gen- that's origin? <laughs> With apologies to the continent of Asia, yes, they're Asian, Asian style. <laughs> wasn't uh, wasn't there some joinery in those? There, yeah, there was. They were all post and beam, and and my good friend Martin McClendon, who I think has an article coming out yeah. in like January. Yeah. Uh, he and I both came th- through theater school together, and we both kind of held hands and skipped through the beginning uh, phases of becoming woodworkers. And we built these cabins, and in cutting our first huge mortise and tenons, we had sort of had we had an epiphany that oh, this is how antique tables were constructed, just in a, in a much smaller way, and um, and we got obsessed with uh, with heirloom furniture and started uh, driving our wives crazy because everywhere we'd go, we'd be down on our backs looking underneath the coffee tables. Uh, <laughs> And we, you know, we discovered things like dovetail drawers, and uh, we just both had enough tool and shop training, and a love of aesthetics 
that I think we were perfectly primed to become beginning woodworkers. And then somebody gave us some issues of fine woodworking, and we were off to the races. Um, it's funny. It's funny how people each discover this similar craft and come up through it through in a similar way. You know, it's like you have the same, very similar journeys of discovery that we all have. If you're cut out, I was just saying this outside to some people, so, uh, some attendees, if you're cut out to do this, when you happen upon it, it's just like breathing pure oxygen when you hit it. it's uh, You just catch the bug and it's like this is going to be a lifetime journey. Yeah. The funny thing is about what, what you just mentioned is you can always tell a woodworker that's at a museum or some sort of house functioning as a museum. Bad breath? No, no, no. Well, that's, that's secondary. But Dusty I, like, I was at Nakashima's place recently, and I was the only guy in that freaking Konoi studio who was on his back like a mechanic under a Ford Mustang looking like, oh, man, that's right. how he did that. Okay, yeah. I get it. You know, look you can the, always tell that, too. Look at those conniption rods. <laughs> yeah. My God, yeah. Well, we, uh, so we got really obsessed, and we, it was so great doing it with a, with a close friend because yeah. we were able to bounce off of each other and... And you know, uh, piggyback and leapfrog uh, in our education, and you know, um, it took us quickly through sort of the arts and crafts period. We both made stickly pieces, and um, and then we got into shaker pieces. And by this time, I had ordered all the back issues of Fine Woodworking and built a, a huge long shelf to proudly display them. And uh, and man, if if you if you listeners have not checked out some of the issues from the 70s and 80s yeah. they're amazing they're they're just as delicious as like stevie wonder lps or or you've got wow. good taste in music too it's they're they're so incredible um we when we first arrive at the magazine you get a cubicle with a full set of magazines and it's awesome because most of us didn't have that full set yeah. when we arrived there and you go back through those old issues and you realize that brilliant is brilliant whether it was in black and white with not a lot of pictures and not a lot of illustrations, brilliant is brilliant. And you can use that stuff. I yeah. use Tay Frid's little notch on my board and batten doors for my house. He makes a notch so the diagonal piece doesn't slip away on you. Yeah, it's awesome, those old issues. It's so great. Yeah, they're full of, of delicious flavor. Yeah, and but, but how did you fall in love with Chris? That's well, what I'm really interested in. So eventually, as, as we're learning uh, about dovetails and... and uh, one of the one of the hardest uh, one of the biggest leaps I made was building a, a blanket a blanket chest that had been on the cover, and uh, it was it turned out great, but it was such a dumb. It was my first try at dovetails, besides a few practice. The whole case runs. was dovetails. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's so great. so my my first dovetail glue up had like seventeen Jesus. dovetails. It's ambitious. And everything went great until the actual glue up, and a third of the way up, the glue started to grab. And this was oh, yeah. a few years before Type Bond 3, so it was probably Type Bond 1. And I, you know, I might have uh, emitted some blue language and uh, pulled out a, a big sledgehammer. Yeah. It, my sister still has the blanket chest. It's. Was it a Chris Bexvert? I think, I, think it was. I don't know if I've ever had a blanket chest on the cover. No. Um, I, oh, I think have... we found it. It was inside. It wasn't on the cover. Oh, okay. But it was your blanket chest that okay. you did that was in the magazine. It just wasn't on the cover. Okay. Nick's getting old, and it's a little faulty yeah, down there. Nobody's the, getting any younger. I've been, I've been writing for the magazine since 1989, I think. Wow. Yeah. That's when I graduated high school. Oh, geez. Thanks, Nick. Well, <laughs> I, I have to establish myself firmly as the freshman at this table. Um, and so, no, that would be me. But it's funny, <laughs> as you, and, and so now I have this really great shop operation with a few young woodworkers who have easily surpassed me uh, handily because I'm spending so much time working as an actor that their education has blown them right past me, which is great. Uh, because now they can tell me the, the better ways to do things. Uh, but as, as we're all learning together, just time after time, when you turn to the magazine and you look up, you know, how do I, uh, how do I fit my, my drawers? What are, what's the best way to, to do a non-hardware drawer slide? Time and time again, you come across Mr. Bexfort's work, and so then eventually you're like, man, who is this stud? And you go check out his website, and, like, yeah. and you see that he... <laughs> he's he, talking about you. He's yeah, the, Chris is looking behind. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's the Superman of, of 
the Shaker style, and it's 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 very inspiring. I've have I've yet to visit Maine, but between your work and all the stuff I've read about from like the Wooden Boat School, yeah, it seems nice, like an nice incredible place. wonderland. <laughs> yeah, so that's how you. So you were you told me that in Chicago you were actually one of the ways you got acting parts and get, got maybe bigger parts was that you would do the scenery for them in exchange, give me a part or give me a bigger part or whatever. Yeah, it wasn't that overt, but uh, the, I wasn't very good yet yeah. at acting. I was still learning, um, but, I, but I was big and strong, and in the theater you often need, you're like, all right, we have these six great actors, now we need, we need four jackasses to yeah. carry the palanquin on stage. Yeah. And so I'd be... <laughs> I'd say, hey, I've, I've got terrific size, and uh, I also have a full set of DeWalt cordless tools. If you guys need anybody to build the palace, I'm available. Yeah. And that really helped me sort of stay alive while my acting chops improved. Well, one of the, I was just going to say real quick that one of the things that, one of the reasons Chris is so awesome in the magazine is that he's one of the contributing editors that has always been far more uh, a working furniture maker than going around becoming an itinerant teacher where they build less and less and less and you build and 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 that's why his he keeps staying relevant and that's why his techniques keep evolving and that's why he's stayed on the masthead as long as he has. But I wanted to ask you, Chris, how did you get started in woodworking? I don't think I've ever asked um, you that. No, my dad drafted me was when I was twelve and I hated it. He was he was trained in Germany and uh, you know, it's a lot like Frank Klaus. You really don't want to work for your father if he was German. <laughs> God, no. And, uh, you know, it uh, came time to go to college. How far away from can I get? I went to University of Maine, got a degree in forestry, and picked up two semesters of uh, wood tech, which was extremely helpful. I'm really big on, on wood movement. I'm, I, owned a, I owned a moisture meter before I owned a table saw. Um, and <clears throat> I worked for the government for a year and came back to Maine and um, happened to be in New Gloucester and... and like you mentioned, you know, bribery is a pretty good thing. I went over to the Shakers and I said, hey, you got anything to fix? I'll do it for the cost of material. Yeah. And you get your foot in the door, and they liked it, and, you know, I kept at it and uh, became their regular restoration person. Yeah. Um, and then the, the Canterbury community closed in 1992. The last sister died in New Hampshire, and so Sabbath Day Lake was the, was the last active Shaker community. And yeah. I feel very honored to have been... Uh, in that position to do that yeah. and it has I mean the, the furniture has influenced me for a long time I first ran across the shakers in college I took an architectural appreciation course and the guy threw up some slides of shaker furniture this is 1810 wow that stuff looks relevant and then uh, in the early 70s they had a, a really nice show at the Renwick Gallery in, in DC and I went to see it and I kept going back um, and then I, I grew up with a lot of um, Scandinavian furniture, like I said earlier, and um, <clears throat> turns out a lot of that was influenced by the Shaker design. They saw some of the Shaker pieces, and yeah. so it, it sort of, um, you know, what goes around comes around. Sabbath Bay Lake is it? That's all that's left? That's all that's left, yeah. And how many how many members are three? Wow. You know, celibacy is not a big sales feature. No, you know? no. I mean, that's no way to keep anything going. I, it works for me, but most people don't go in for it. But does, it doesn't work for you by choice. True, that's true. I guess, right? That's a good point. That's yeah. a, it's a hurtful point, but it's a good point. But uh, what I was going to say to you, Chris, you didn't know what you were getting into, did I you? You're really coming didn't. in to no, sit here no, in no, our no. blanket lodge. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one thing you might be interested to know about what Nick's doing, and I just found this out from Lee, one of, one of I, I guess she's your main shop manager, right? She is, yeah. She's, she's, he, she's been here the whole entire Fine Working Live, taking notes furiously and loving it. I can tell she's drinking it in. Um, one thing that she told me that you're doing is Nick sort of invited a lot of up-and-coming woodworkers to use his shop, and he's got a little hothouse greenhouse going there. Cool. You know, you've been fortunate enough to be able to build a nice shop in L.A., and he's invited all these folks in to work on their own commissions out of his nice little facility there in L.A., and so I thought that was a really cool thing that you're doing. Well, when I got this big break, this job on, on my TV show, Parks and Recreation, uh, NBC Thursday nights. Um, <laughs> what time is that? I'm not sure this year. Uh, 9.30 maybe? Yeah. I think we might be last now. You used to lead right into the office. Wasn't it 8.30? They're all, yeah, they're always juggling yeah. it around. But when I got this job, I knew that if it took off, um, that I, 
I, my dream would come true, uh, that my, my dream shop life was going to be ruined by my dream acting life. And, uh, and I, I, it was clear that I was going to have to make a decision to either shut off the lights and lock the door, or I have this beautiful shop, and I, I mean, I'm so spoiled because my acting work uh, has afforded me a much nicer shop than just my woodworking would have. Um, and so, you know, I, I thought it would be a shame to just let it sit there, and so I immediately tried to find some, some young, ambitious woodworkers, and I, f and I found a few, and we are all working together. It's the first time that... Um, like we're we're dealing with a commission right now, that where we're reproducing something I designed and built already, and it's it's an interesting new world. I mean, I always just worked by myself, and maybe I'd have a couple buddies come in and sand for me. But now now I have these these great uh, robust youngsters, um, and and so we have this little operation going, and it's it's nice. It it feels anything I can do to help people that want to get into a handcraft. I just think that's so much better of a way to spend their time than the way most of our society is yeah. is going into. And I bet they appreciate a place to work, you know, having that place to work. I hope how, so. do you awesome. how do you balance it? I mean, how often are you able to be in the shop? It depends. I mean, uh, the time I, I get the most shop time is actually when we're shooting the TV season because we shoot like a film. It's single camera, um, which means that uh, if... if I have a different storyline than the, than Amy, the lead. Maybe I'll just work two out of the five okay. days, and I and there I've got four days at the shop that week. Um, it's when I'm out of town doing movies that I do a lot of emailing back and forth with Lee. Yeah. Well, um, since Nick's got to go do a sound check for his mm -hmm. performance tonight, and we're so thankful, by the way, that you were able to show up here and do this. We'll it's see. Be yeah. Fun. Hold, well, hold your applause. It may be terrible. But <laughs> yeah. But uh, you, <laughs> uh, you're not supposed to say that to someone who's about to perform, probably. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, um, um, wh why don't we give Nick his the question that's do it. shot right at All him right. because he just did an article in the magazine with a nice router jig for surfacing big slabs. Here's a big slab question, and we'll let you go off and do your thing. Okay, sounds good. Okay, this comes from Wes Potts, and Wes writes... Um, that he started on a new project and he needs some professional advice. I've got an oak end grain slab destined to be a coffee table. I'm planning to flatten the slab with a router and sled vaguely similar uh, to the one that Nick built in issue 222. He built the sled and the rails, he got the slab up on the bench, and he decided he'd probably better fill the cracks and checks before he touched it with a router. Um, he ran to Lowe's, he got some epoxy, but he didn't really find any of the choices um, to be what he had in mind. So his questions are, since the slab is end grain, it's about two inch, it's like a two inch cross section of what seems to be a cluster of trees or trunks grown together. It's got several cracks and a few bark occlusions. Um, I should fill the cracks before trying to flatten it, correct? Is epoxy the best choice? Could you recommend an epoxy? Um, should I try to extract the occlusions and fill those? The slab is about 54, 54 by 38. Um, so basically, he's wondering how to get around all of these cracks and checks. And using uh, end grain short. in general, a big giant end grain slab like that, it's pretty funky. It, it is. It, um, I mean, I, and Wes, I've got photos here of your slab, which which will be very helpful. Um, uh, first and foremost, to answer your question, I I've seen a lot of work where guys, uh, ladies and guys, fill these cracks with epoxy with all kinds of things, and I. I'm 100% against that. I don't ever fill my cracks. Um, and the reason is, with the movement you're going to get, eventually it looks like ass. Um, I, I, I know a guy who, technical term. who makes really nice tables, but he, but he fills stuff with epoxy. And after a couple of years, you end up with cracks, and it, it looks bad. Um, what I do, it, it, with most of the checking you have in this uh, I'm, I'm going to assume it's dry already, and so hopefully there won't be too much more checking. But most of that stuff I just leave alone. Um, I, I do a blind man's test and run my fingers over it and soften anything to make it friendly to the to the touch. And then a couple of those bigger, like, pith checks, I'd throw a, a butterfly key across them, um, both for, for safety and just because they look nice. 
Um, but that's, I mean, that that's my two cents. Is I I don't like filling, I don't like using filler anywhere I can ever get away with it. Um, I also take the bark off because I presume that eventually it's going to fall off, and so I clean it off and get her. Uh, get down to that like cambium layer and 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 you give it a light sanding it's really beautiful character. So that's all you because I, I did a natural slab table a nakashima style and i didn't quite know what to do i did exactly what you said on the outside but in that cambium layer um right below the bark that's kind of where i went to and then i sanded lightly but it was kind of stained and funky through there and i sort of wondered i guess you just sort of live with that and just just don't try to. Uh... It's one of those things I think that's actually really beautiful, mm-hmm. but our we're, we're so trained to to make our surfaces perfect, right? That if you step back or if you invite some some friends in, right, they'll say, "Wow, that looks so cool." I mean, a lot of the slabs I get uh, on the end, it'll have some uh, lousy big chainsaw scar or something. And you're like, oh man, I got to deal with that. Yeah. But when you step back and look at it, it's this great piece of character. It, it smacks of Pittsburgh and the years of steel, and it, you know, it, it says something um, about that tree and how it came to be this table. Mm-hmm. And it, depending on the style, obviously, but with with a natural edge slab, I, I, re- I think all of that stuff just helps. And there's a difference between what non-woodworkers like and what woodworkers like. Like outside folks, I think, really dig the organic funkiness of things because they feel like, oh, there's the tree. You know, they can see the tree. And, um, and if you're selling this kind of work, it probably makes the stuff popular. People want to see that there's tree left in it because that's something they definitely can't get from a factory or whatever, yeah. I guess. Have you had any experience, Chris, with kind of big slabs of end grain? It's different than a long grain slab. It's, you know, I'm, I'm sort of torn between letting myself loose and and towing the line between you know we got to produce perfection which was the shaker mantra um and so i every once in a while in my spare time i approach work uh for for clients entirely different than pieces i do for myself uh basically for therapy you know even though i do this 60 hours a week i still do it as a hobby as well and it's just an entirely different mindset. Now, in a piece like this, I mean, this is, this is, I couldn't think of a worse thing. This is like five trees growing out of a stump, and the, the tension in that piece is just unbelievable. What I would do is get myself 100 pounds of, of uh, PEG, which is polyethylene glycol, a wax-like substance, put it in a plastic bag, soak it. Um, it will permanently swell back. Most of those will close, and the the peg actually fills the cell voids, wow. and it stays Whoa. put. What? This <laughs> <laughs> is ridiculous. Is this, is, is, this, is this information somewhere? Uh, that's been uh, in the magazine. Yeah, it's I been think. in the magazine. Way back. The uh, the peg, and then there's that. Oh God, what is that? That liquid. Um, Don't look at me. Guy, I'm the guy under started, forty. <laughs> Nick, you've been wasting oh my so God. much time. There, there are a lot of chemicals you can use to <laughs> basically. Heard of peg. You're for real. Yeah, you're real. <laughs> you're, you're really. <laughs> I know. I you know I get those bulletins from the Forest Products yeah. Lab in Wisconsin, and they're always coming up with cool you're stuff. You're in the ring with Ali. You didn't oh think you were God. just going to get. I a think it's more of caps, did you? I'm on the ropes. <laughs> Woodworking <laughs> superhero from deep yeah. within his. But I heard downside of peg a little bit. I heard oh, some yeah, downside of it. Do you? I mean, I can't remember. It's, it's I wish I was sticky smarter and greasy. And yeah. It doesn't take finish as well. Right. Um, yeah, everything Does has a downside. Does it become its there. own finish? Can you just leave it? Pretty much, but it's uh, it's always a little you know greasy and sticky because it's a mm-hmm. wax like uh, so substance. So maybe that's not and, a real pleasant some, thing. To and have it tends a... to melt at around 120 degrees. So if you, <laughs> if you put it in your greenhouse <laughs> on a sunny day, the yeah. stuff starts. Dripping so would up. that would that make it an unpleasant dining table to have yeah. in your house? Yeah, as a dining table, I would not do that. Okay. And you know polyethylene glycol. We're talking, we're talking uh, antifreeze here. This yeah. is not something you want to put food on. Yeah, but you could get rid of a pet though. Leave a little dish of it. Yeah, well, I've, I've a got a cat not that's a, just... not a great playpen finish. No, no. <laughs> so I, maybe you're not as dumb as you thought you were, Nick. Something else I do, Wes, looking at pictures of this, is um, uh, when, when you know you, you run the risk of just have, having this turn into a potato chip, depending on the the seasonal movement yeah. and humidity. Um, I just did a table uh, of a nice, really nice round slab of buckeye burl, and it's incredibly beautiful, but it's really, uh, it's really insubstantial wood. 
And so I, I routed out most of the bottom <clears throat> and laid in uh, uh, a sheet of, of oak plywood wow. uh, just to stabilize it. And I epoxied it and screwed it in just so that, because, I mean, this, the, it's kind of like a rice cake. Like if, if, if somebody sat on it at a party too hard, it would snap in well, half. Well, I know that's the thing about all that, right, all that short grain. Right. Right. And so that that might help buy you some stability if you put it, but... If it's already dry, if it's already completely dry and, and, it, and it's still in that state, that's pretty darn good. And if yeah. you live in an area where you're not going to get massive moisture changes, maybe you'd be okay. But in an area like where we live... All right, can I, can I yeah. pose a question? And the yes. big question here is, is, is doing a big, thick, end grain slab like that even yeah. really... Is it a smart idea? Is it at a all? smart idea? Just go back. I mean, to you the don't be use big end grain slabs, right? Everything's long grain, isn't it? Mostly, but I've I've done a couple of coffee tables just like this, but yeah. with walnut. But exact same thing, where it was four trunks, yeah, cr creating a mass. And but I always uh, I always try to cut them rough at four to five inches thick, so that I can <clears throat> let it cure, you know, flatten it, let it cure for another year, and flatten right. it. And so I end up with two and a half or three inches that the movement is going to be minimal, maybe a, a quarter inch total. Hmm. But and I would only do that for a coffee table. Anything that wants to be remotely rectilinear, you'd steer away and from. There's something about that big round shape that looks a little Lord of the Ringsy and mushroomy to me. I don't know, God which, forbid. I don't. Which you're making sound like this is a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, no, that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> I live underground in a house with a round door, so yeah. for my house, it's great. But uh, for a lot of people, they might not go in for that sort of thing. It's true. It's it, it's uh, it all depends on your taste. I I like to plan each piece of furniture as though it's going into Gandalf's house. <laughs> well, on that note, that's a perfect note. Maybe you know, there's one other thing I'd like to address in these pictures, which is this weird pitch pocket. Uh huh. Uh, that's that's ingrown bark. Yeah, and it, it, yeah, it's like a triangular shape pocket. I, I had a problem like this on another table where it was too weird and uh, misshapen to do a, a Dutchman to like put in a patch. And this, my thing was a, a slab of English walnut that the colors were, and grain were so bizarre, there was just no way to put anything in that wouldn't stick out like a sore thumb. So the base of my table had some, some nickel accents and so I ended up creating this this accent in the tabletop, an organic shape that followed the grain of right. ni of nickel plated steel, nice. and I inlaid it. But when you have something like that, that you, you have to be, get creative. Um, <clears throat> this is such a strange shape, but it's near the edge of the table, so you might you might turn it into a hole and make oh. it you know an ashtray or a candy dish or or you know. Put a put a some sort of jack in the box in it. I or, think in the house where this is going, I would flip this over, and that's where the guy keeps his weed. That's that's where I would. That's what I would do. I don't know what you're talking about, Asa? This is a family program. <laughs> Here, let me draw you a picture. Ed. <laughs> Does Gandalf do weed? They do. They have okay. something in there. there Not is, that I'm a geek or anything, I, but yeah. there's some sort of a weed that the two little guys always keep yeah. smoking. Yes, yeah, so it's called long bottom leaf. Yes. Asa. <laughs> the uh, the Shire is known for its pipe weed. Pipe weed, yes. Yeah. And the two guys who are always getting in trouble, the two little ne'er-do-well guys, yeah. don't tell me you know their names. Mary and Pippin. Oh, oh my gosh. God. Short for um, Nerd Mar alert. Mariah Doc and Peregrine Took. This is as bad as Paulini and I in Star Wars. Let's just... One thing, one, one thing that we noticed, we were just talking about outside here at Fine Woodworking Live, is that woodworkers have... They tend to not just be interested in woodworking, but they tend to be nerdy about lots of things. And so you fit right in. Good. There you go. I'm I'm learning. I, I'm happy to, very happy to be a, a novice in this group. Yeah. Well, should we let Nick get ready for Let's his performance? Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Oh, my pleasure. And Chris, you got so you, you get, get to, to pick stay on put. me a little more. Yeah, Thank you, you stay put. Yes. We got some shaker questions for you. And Ed, I'm going to leave you on your own, and I'll go with, with Nick. I'm his celebrity handler. Thank you for tolerating me. <laughs> uh, Yes. <laughs> it's, it's our pleasure. I've been watching you guys on Facebook for the past six or eight months, watching all the stuff coming out of your shop, so it's kind of cool to see oh, you really? and Lee here. Yeah. They've oh. got a pretty cool Facebook page. Oh, my, my brother runs that. <clears throat> I've never done Facebook, and I don't ever intend to. I, 
I stay off that stuff. I well, there wish, was a really funny, your to. brother's got a good sense of humor, because there was, you guys were cutting down a tree recently, some massive tree in yeah, somebody's camp, front yard. a camphor tree in Burbank. I wrote some comment in there that was like, oh my God, this is sick, I'm getting hot, hold on, I'll be right back. Uh, I'm getting hot again, I gotta go, like, wet my face down, I'll be back, and he just writes back. It's really Well, weird. that's why we didn't photograph any of these guys below the waist, Ed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Anyhow, thanks for coming on, and... Uh, We'll see you tonight. My pleasure. Thank you, Ed. Okay, now that Nick is off and getting ready for his performance at Final Working Live with Asa, um, I wanted to first welcome Mike Pekovich on. Hey, guys. Uh, you're normally on with Asa and I often. I'm anyway. always on, Ed. You're always on. <laughs> um, so now I've got two guys who um, I have been learning a lot from since way before I ever started working here. Um, and I've got some shaker questions, which I wanted to pitch towards Chris. Cool. And I think Mike will also have some good insights, too. Um, so let's jump up with this one from Jim. And this came in via Lumberjocks. And uh, he wrote, if Chris shows up, ask about shaker hardware. What materials did the shakers actually use? Forged iron for hinges? Wood for knobs? Handles? What styles did they actually use? H hinges? Mushroom knobs? And where can I find this sort of thing today? Is anyone selling good reproductions? Whoa, that's a whole pile of questions right there. And the answer is yes, yes, no, and sometimes and maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's start at the beginning. The materials they used, um, early on it was, it was all forged hardware. Um, Did they make it themselves, Chris, or they were buying yeah. this? No, they had, I mean, commun- they tried to be as self-sufficient as possible. And they had, you know, they had blacksmith shops and wow. they had... Uh, all sorts of things. Some things they didn't make. You know, glass was imported, and some of their tools they bought, and, and, and various other things. But they tried to be as self-sufficient as possible. The the early shaker furniture, um, what we call the the primitive period or the early period um, before they de- really developed their defined style, you would find very similar. Um, Techniques and hardware to what was used in in uh, the New England area at the time. Okay. They would use the H hinges, and they were usually surface mounted. Um, this those, is late 18th century. This is late 18th century, up until about oh 1810, maybe okay. late 1700s, early 1800s. They would use the the raised panels, and it was very it was very hard to distinguish their work from from the outside work. Any because, other sort of country style? Yes, very much okay. of a country New England. And then uh, between between 1820 and 1850 is when they developed their uh, what we call the classic style. The, okay. What everybody thinks of as as you know the really nice fine shaker furniture. Now they had several um, several rules. Um, the millennial law stipulated you know no carving, no ornamentation. Everything was strictly utilitarian. Um, they didn't. They even had rules as to the size that mirrors could be, and they wow. used very little glass in their doors and things like that. And one of the rules was that brass was an ostentatious material and it was too worldly. So most of their hmm. metal hardware was handmade, and it was it was um, wood, iron, iron. The, the hinges, for example, and then they um, the knobs were were usually wood. Um, very often a contrasting wood, usually a really nice tight grain apple or cherry or maple, okay. something that turned well. You know, I've, I've never seen a piece with, uh, uh, with an oak knob. And they, they really developed the mushroom knob, which I don't know if it grew out of the, the, um, the shaker peg or, or vice versa. Oh, funny. But the, the shaker peg, I mean, if you, if you think of a mushroom knob and you sort of stretch right. it out yes. to about three inches, there's quite a bit of similarity there with, you know, the rounded head. Um, and they really developed that and, and refined it. It's um, you know I can see some of the early ones that sort of had a flat face on it. And they're they're really kind of rough. Um, and then you look at some of the later classic ones, and they're right on the money. They get a nice round he- uh, head. Right. And then it, it's not really a round cut off on the side. It's sort of a parabola. It comes in straight and then okay. flares out. And then there's usually a little shoulder round. Um, so they tried to keep their they tried to keep their um, hardware and and knobs and handles um, pretty much utilitarian. There wasn't a lot of um, creativity. Not a lot of flair. Not a lot of flair. Although in some of the New Hampshire pieces I've looked at, they would take the knobs and they would make a little tiny bullseye right yeah. in the middle, oh, which is kind of cool. cool. 
you know, just a little tiny touch. I was going to ask um, you about that because there's different shaker communities, and was there enough communication and interaction between the communities to keep that evolution consistent? Oh, yeah. I mean, they were constantly going back and forth. I don't think anybody's ever run across a, a plan for a piece of furniture, a dimension plan. They just didn't exist. It was all word of mouth and visiting, and, you know, they'd, they'd bring a, a piece over, or one community would close, or... Uh, they'd send a one of their best woodworkers to a community that didn't have any woodworkers, so they could wow. teach the the younger folks in the so community. So there was some so cross pollination. So there was a lot. There. there was a lot of cross pollination. Now, okay. one thing that's interesting was that the the, the shaker chairs. Every community had pretty much their own style of finials on the oh, chairs, cool. and you can you can uh, tell which chairs came from which communities, and, okay. and they're you know. So then. As far as hinges are concerned, for somebody building their own project, stay away from brass. Stay away from brass. A lot of the, once you get into the Victorian era, uh, into the 1860s, 70s, 19s, early part of the 20th century, they did start using brass. But early and classic uh, shaker, it was all iron for hinges. This kind of brings up an, an interesting question. It's not, it's not really related to this particular question, it's a, but it's a general shaker question. I always just assumed that the movement was, uh, one of the qualities was pacifism, which, is that correct or not? And there's a oh, reason. I'm going somewhere yeah. with this. Okay. All right. I have been told that at Hancock Shaker Village, the only piece of original uh, iron equipment there that's left, that's original, is I think it's the bandsaw or something. The reason being that during World War II, a lot of that stuff, anything iron was taken out, melted down for, you know, for the war effort, which... When I, when I heard that from a guy from Hancock Shaker Village, and when I heard that, I think you know what I'm talking about. When I heard that, a light bulb went off. Like, well, that sounds really odd. Um, that sounds incredibly odd. So it's the fact that they're contributing some yeah, of the machinery to... Yeah, that seems to be going right. completely counter to everything I've ever understood. Not that I, I know I a I guess ton, yes and no. But, um, <clears throat> they, they were, in fact, pacifists, and they, they had a special exemption uh, during the Civil War. Uh, oh. They actually had to write to President Lincoln... And they stated their case, and you know he he actually wrote back, and I think it's one of the letters is still in the museum at, at Old Chatham or somewhere like yeah. that. Um, and so I mean, they they've always been recognized as as pacifists. Um, as far as as melting down, they've they've always also tried to be part of the community and contribute as much as possible. They've always paid taxes in in whatever town they've, even though they're a religious organization and were entitled to. Uh, tax exemptions. Right. They have tried to participate in the community, and I, and I think, you know, um, a lot of the iron was was probably scraps they had sitting around, and and when when people came collecting, why they they thought they would contribute. I, you know, I, I don't know how they felt about having this made into into tanks and bombers, but um, <laughs> I mean that's something was, that I would love part to ask. Of the, yeah. I, I don't know if you're going to get a straight answer because right. there's only... Uh, there's only three left. There's only three of them left, and they're from Sabbath Day Lake, and they right. they weren't around. Um, one, one other um, question mm-hmm. that, that Jim mentioned was, is anyone selling good reproduction? Um, Smith's Knobs in New Jersey is a little outfit um, that makes um, pools and shaker pegs as close to what I consider to be the nicest. Oh, cool. um, but they only make them in like three different sizes. And when I do a 15-drawer chest, you know, I've got 10 different size drawers on right. there. So a lot of times what I'll do is I'll, I'll buy some Smith's knob and, and rework them. them. Right. Yeah, mod them. Mike's put, put done them, that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just chuck them in the lathe. Or if you don't have a lathe, you can even do it in a drill press. A drill press, yeah. And, and rework them to not only sand them a little finer, but to um, bring out, you know, the shape that you, that you need or even the size that you need. Right. Right, just think of it that as sort of rough well. turn so, stock. And then so, it yeah, it, there are some reproductions out there, but, you know, if you want something really nice, um, make it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that brings us on to our next question, and this one comes from Rick. And Rick wrote, uh, I'm a recent listener to Shop Talk Live, and while I make my living in technology, I find it difficult to get time to spend hours browsing the web for woodworking content, reading blogs. I almost never tweet, but I crave the content. Um, in one episode, you discussed how the shakers often went down to half-inch material to build their pieces, and that three-quarter-inch material is, more, is very standard nowadays among amateur hobbyists because of the advent of mass production, and that's the size that we commonly see in home centers. Right. Um, 
the point being that we often overbuild. Um, is there any rule of thumb that helps guide that? And he gives us an example. He says, I want to build a table with tapered legs. I have tapered one and a half inch and one and a quarter inch to one inch square at the bottom. When do I risk the legs uh, being too weak? I have little time to sit and read, but podcasts I can play and listen while I'm driving. Um, and then he asks if there are any podcasts for design that might help. I don't know of any, but he's asking about leg dimensions. When are you getting too weak? So figure what's your average leg height, 30 inches? 29, 29. Yeah. Well, you just um, did some tapered legs for us. Yes. Um, and again, it's, it's going to vary. You know, you, there is no rule of thumb. Um, uh, I don't know who, who was. If it, if it looks good, it is good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if it sounds good, it is good. Um, it depends on, on the size of the overall table. In other words, if you're making, if you're making a nightstand, uh, those legs usually started out an inch and a quarter and went down to an inch or sometimes even seven-eighths. You go down to five-eighths and it really looks spidery. And what happens is uh, you bump the top of the table it and it starts to wiggle. wiggle. You get that yeah. flex, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's what you want to avoid. Um, so it's, it's kind of a fine line. You try to thin it down as much as possible without making it look obviously skinny um, and then running the danger of, of making it um, unstable and too flexible. And that, that too you know, flexible. species comes into play there, too, because when I built my, that shaker writing desk, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I built it out of pine that we had locally sawn, and I, my tapers went down to about an inch. And I can put my palms on... I love the desk, don't get me wrong, but I can put my palms on the top of that desk and wiggle right, left, right, left, and I can see the flex mm. in those legs. So cherry, obviously, you're probably not going to have that problem mm. at, at an inch right. at the bottom. Yeah. But most most table legs are are made out of um, hardwoods of one sort or another. Yeah. Now, if you go to a dining table, that usually starts at an inch and a, usually an inch and three quarter. You've got a bigger table, you've got more mass. You want it to look a little heavier, but not too heavy. And again, if you're going from inch and three quarters or an inch and a half stock on a dining table, you'd come down to uh, probably an inch and a quarter at the bottom. Um, it's it's all a matter of, you know, the, the more pieces you look at, the more comfortable you get. I mean, I started out reproducing straight shaker pieces, you know. Yeah. And then uh, once you get comfortable with that, then you can start branching out a little bit, um, seeing how far you can you can take this. A good example is the shaker chair. They didn't invent the ladder back chair. It was a New England chair. But what they did was they refined it. They thinned it down. Mm -hmm. They made it light enough so that you could hang it on the wall and yet sturdy enough so that it would last 200 years if taken care of. Which many of them have. Right? Yeah. Right. So it's a balancing act and, and a matter of uh, experience. And, and uh, you know, there's no one rule of proportion. Uh, the only rule that I would I would consider a rule of thumb is the smaller the piece, the, the, the lighter the components. Right, keep it you know, proportionally. They have to be in proportion right. to the overall size yeah. of the piece. Yeah, one thing, one problem I had with tapered legs, especially if I'm designing a piece, I'll do a front view of a, a little table and I'll do these nice, very slender, graceful tapered legs, and I'll build it to those dimensions and all of a sudden the legs will look really fat. And I realize that if you draw it only from a front view, you're only viewing the leg from one view, but as you what walk three around it, yes. and you yeah. see both sides, the legs tend to be fatter. So one thing that's always worked for me is if I'm doing a leg, a lot of times I'll get a piece of scrap and do a full-size mock-up of that leg right. and just shape it until it looks right, and I won't worry about what that exact dimension is as long as it looks sort of what, like what I had in mind. So That's a really great idea, Mike. And the advantage of a turned leg is you can look at it from any direction. It's just yeah, there you go. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, um, I just wanted to interrupt because we're going to bring on uh, an attendee from Final Working Live uh, to chat with. But um, first off, uh, I wanted to send Chris out with a bang, so I have a very controversial confession to make. Uh oh. Uh, when I was in college at an undisclosed location in northern New York State, um, there was a book in the college library that had come out about that time. It was about Shaker furniture by a guy named C.H. Bexford. And at the time, my college had done something to me that kind of ticked me off. I think I got robbed of 10 bucks or something. So I was in the library one day. I was like, this book is awesome. I have to have this book. And I thumbed through the book and found a little magnetic strip. And I kind of peeled it out. Oh, and I walked away with, with Chris's book. And I, I still have it. I feel terrible. 
And I think I'm actually going to put another copy in the mail and send it to them after this podcast. After this podcast, I think we should. <laughs> Maybe we should have Chris sign it and mail it back. That's yeah. even better. Yeah. See if be you can really cool. dig up a, a, hard cop, a hardcover copy. That would be nice. A hardcover? Oof. Yes. There's still a couple around. I don't I probably, but it was my drop-dead favorite book. Wow. I mean, it still is one of my favorite books on furniture. That and uh, George Nakashima's Soul of a Tree. Um, so, wow. you know, I chose wisely, but I've always wanted to get that off the table. I always feel bad. Anytime I've seen you, I always felt bad. I was like, I feel like such a heel. <laughs> but it was already paid for, so, you know. Grand larceny yeah, starts I know. early. No, this wasn't grand, but anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us. Well, thanks and, for uh, having me, Ed. Really thanks, appreciate Chris. it. And we'll see you soon. Okay, Chris is out. Now we're going to play uh, musical chairs yet again, except this time we're bringing in, uh, Asa has come back, and now we've got an attendee. From Final Working Live, this is Pete Savickas. Um, and Pete is here to tell us about everything we've done wrong yes. over the past I three found, days. I found Pete outside. We went, I went hunting for someone who's attending the show that would be willing to, to come on and talk about it. Since we are here live at the show, and the first guy I ran into was Pete. And he, and he said, would you I, tell I me? I foolishly that? volunteered. I didn't even know you were looking for somebody. I volunteered some information. I, I told so you were telling me that... The thing for you is something about that, um, well, you say it's something about meeting the guys. Yeah, well, I've, I've read Fine Woodworking Magazine for years, almost 20 years, you know, but, you know, you know, it's my magazine, you know. There were other magazines I saw, and I thought, geez, I feel guilty. I'm starting to like this one better, but it got worse, so. <laughs> but You have good taste. But now that I've met, well, thank you very much. <laughs> now that I've met everybody and been here, there's a, a camaraderie of just a bond that seems to be forming. It, it's going to be more intimate magazine now. Now it's definitely my magazine. All right. <laughs> and, and to see all the guys uh, um, who have, you know, the authors who have become really our heroes as far as woodworkers, amateur woodworkers go, and, you know, probably a lot of professionals. Yeah, that mine way, too, absolutely. You know, yeah. um, it's, it's just been a fantastic experience. That's great. You know, we were, I was just saying to Pete outside that, the same kind of thing happened to us, most of us, when we came to work here, right? Yeah. I'm sure I see Ed nodding. It's like the first time I went out to Garrett Hack's farm, I had seen that in pages in the magazine, and I thought, you know, I don't know. I was just scared of the whole idea of it all. But um, then I met Garrett, and he was just a regular guy, and I helped him with his cows, and, you know. <laughs> and also, I found out that well, a great thing about woodworkers just, it, one of my favorite thing about things about guys who really know what they're talking about is they don't have to be blowhards about it. They tend to be down to earth about it, you know, and that makes them really nice to work with. Absolutely, they will yeah. even yeah. welcome your ideas. You know, they'll, it, it's kind yeah. of a kind of a cool thing. Yeah, and something yeah. you mentioned, Pete. I use the analogy of whenever the odd occasion I get dragged to a party by my wife or something, I'm lucky <laughs> if I can find one guy to talk about woodworking. And if I do, that's it. My night is great. Easy. And here it's like, woo, exactly. just yeah. anybody, a conversation. <laughs> hey, what are you doing? What are you making? What's your shop like? You know, and it's, it's great. It's just like, you know, everybody here is a, is a buddy, whether I, I've met them or not. And it's, uh, it's just a great gathering of people. What, what are the highlights for you so far? What have you enjoyed so far? Oh, geez, just about all of it. I mean... I love to eat. There's been a lot of food here. <laughs> but, but you know, I think I saw this in my veins. So, you know, uh, just meeting uh, some of the woodworkers that I haven't met, you know, the, the name guys. But mm -hmm. meeting people at random. I mean, my, my, this, this girl from um, the Brooklyn, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being from Florida, and I originally I lived in Michigan, and Brooklyn was like a legendary place or something, you know, they always joke about on TV. I met somebody, works from, in Brooklyn. I met somebody <laughs> from Brooklyn, a girl, and she does woodworking. She's a great person, you know. And uh, a lot of other people just, you see somebody who's got the tags, says, fine worker, he's a buddy, he's a brother. Right away, everybody's saying hi, talking, everybody has been so friendly just right. because of that common bond, you know. It's interesting because it brings up this, um, we, in some circles, we've sort of had to fight this reputation that sometimes we're a little bit too snobby or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. How do you describe Because the work that? is so pretty in the magazine, people think it's elitist or something. This guy, That's the term. This guy's probably really arrogant. Right. Look at the nice work he does, right? They're just really talented <laughs> yeah. people. That's all, it real, that's, all, that's all it is. So you rotated through all the 
classes. Have you been here both days? Yes. So you yeah, went we, to Steve Latta's thing on right. furniture construction. Oh, yeah. uh -huh. You went to Garrett Hack on details. details right. Uh, Matt Kenny with the bench accessories, and Mike mm -hmm. was sharpening, and Michael Fortune right. with the bending wood. Anything uh -huh. stand out for you? You don't well, have to well, say Mike. Mike Pergovich was kind of a disappointment, but yeah. no, I'm <laughs> kidding, Mike. <laughs> uh, what would stand out? Well, um, gosh, there's, there's so much. It was so good. Um, yeah. Well, well, Michael Fortune, like I so said, we had our guild. I belong to Central Florida Woodworkers Guild. Okay. Well, actually, I'm the current president of the Central oh, Florida great. Woodworkers great. Guild. You know, I when I woke up from my nap, I was a president. That's the only reason. <laughs> that's the only reason that happened, I guess. And uh, we had Michael Fortune down, so it was good to see him again. Neat. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're up there bending wood, and he said, "We've worked together before. Grab that." He had me bending. The, that's the first time I ever bent a piece of wood that big. You know. And, yeah. And um, from all I've seen of steam bending, I've done a little. I bent yeah. a piece, of, a short little piece of black walnut once to make some kind of a hair thing for. But everything I've seen, I see on different TV shows that are on public TV. They only got two minutes to run around frantic. Yeah. Well, he's walking through there, takes it out of the steamer, and he's walking through there and talking, and, uh, and I'm going nuts. Now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so Michael, out. get it. Up. <laughs> yeah. But he told us you don't have to beforehand, but to actually see him. He said you got take, like 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah, he took, a so, phone much, call, he took so much time, <laughs> and then we yeah. bent it. And I actually did the bending, you know, mm -hmm. and it, it bent pretty easy. That was he amazing. Was, I heard a little bit of him talking. You haven't had a chance to really no. sit in his seminar, but he was, a, I mean, the thing is between him and some of the guys on TV is he just knows more about it than those guys. And yeah, he was talking exactly. about the conditions, the exact conditions you have to have in order mm -hmm. for something to bend successfully and how too much time and you soften the lignin too much mm -hmm. and then you get those compression ripples along the inside of the bend oh, okay. and how he gets zero spring back and it's just a series of conditions it's a controlling of temperature and time and once you achieve those certain conditions those thick chunks of wood he was yeah. bending yeah. were four inch square pieces of wood bent in 90 degree angle crazy unbelievable just because he's able to control the conditions yeah. and he understands the science he understands the material yeah yeah, wow. yeah. yeah. biggest great. thing i learned out of that workshop manning the video camera in there for the close-ups and whatnot yeah i had no idea that when you bend because i i haven't done any bent wood for any of my projects i had no idea that when you bend a piece of wood you have to uh, control it from end to end yeah yeah. So compression strap. Compression mm -hmm. strap. Otherwise, yeah. you're going to you're going to shatter That's that area. That's because yeah. wood can take an incredible amount of compression, but zero it pulling apart. Right. So it yeah. only can compress. So the outside you have to maintain that outside length. The outside diameter length. of the bend has got to yeah. stay the same, and the inside takes an incredible amount of compression. Um, yeah. And those he was saying the inside shortened on this long bend by fourteen, 14 inches. inches. Yeah, or something like crazy. That. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, Just, project the other night. Yeah. yeah. I thought 14 inches, holy mackerel. So what he's talking about here is imagine you've got a, a plank of about wood a nine in front of you. a long piece, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. For those people who are listening, you've got a plank of wood in front of you looking at it on edge. Yeah. When you bend that around a form, the outer edge is going to stay the same length it was when it was flat. Yeah. But that inner yeah. face is going to lose It's yeah. why a car inches. has a differential yeah. in the back. Yeah. Right. It's because right. the Different outside radius. wheel is yeah. always going to travel so much farther at, in the, mm -hmm. during the same amount of sure. time, and the inside wheel needs to be able to turn slower. And, yeah, for all the that. gearheads out there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So the big question is, if, if we do this again uh, next year and we change out some of these workshops and whatnot, are you yeah. going to be back? Yeah. <laughs> would you come back if we I I probably it? would, yeah. That's excellent. See, see some new guys, you know? Yeah. What'd you think of that good, bad, and ugly this morning? That design. <laughs> that was that was great. I loved it. Yeah, I especially loved those salt and pepper shakers. Oh. <laughs> as soon as I saw them, I knew what they looked like to me right away. You know. <laughs> yes, Michael said that to him. Someone told him that those salt and pepper shakers look like dog poo, sort of like coming out. But you have these. Uh, cylindrical objects mm. sticking up at about mm -hmm. an 85 degree angle. Into I had the a different air. interpretation when I saw them. With a coiled bottom. Well, I can understand that. He's doing the like work. something and, else and that wasn't dog he's, food. He's doing the work and he's forming it, shaping it. Now, I've worked on pieces. I've done carving. I've done furniture. I've, turned, I've, done, you know, I've done all kinds of woodworking. Yeah. And sometimes I spend months on a project. Yeah. And when it's totally completed, I stand back and look at it. And it's like I've never seen it before. Right. I mean, now every square inch of it. But when it's done, I look at it, 
wow, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's why those full-size mock-ups are so important, yeah. to actually see it in real life. And even if you build it with cheap wood or cardboard or whatever you can do to get a full-size thing you can walk around, maybe live with for a few weeks, and uh, before you commit yourself, right, to the really good. Yeah, what I wood. loved about Michael's presentation is he's probably the most ambitious in accomplished designer of anybody that writes for us and he had like the biggest misfires as well yeah and it was great and one of his quotes which i think is great and i try to remember every time i mess up he said but if you always hit your mark maybe your target is too close yeah oh, man that's <laughs> you're not risking so, enough right yeah right so he's got a lot of good quotes the other one i like is uh design happens a lot more often good design happens a lot more often by evolution than revolution oh yeah right that's another at, good one. I was at Mark Adams School in May, and Michael Fortune signs that quotes are all over the wall. Oh, <laughs> yeah. The one I remember, I think maybe it came from my wife, is if you never made a mistake, you probably never did anything. Yeah, <laughs> yes. That's true. I'm not sure where she got it. That's true. Well, I'm really glad that you came, Pete, and, um, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. It's awesome. Is... I hope you have a good time tonight listening to Nick. Oh, hope yeah. Hope you're ready no. to laugh. Uh, I have to admit, yeah, I never heard of the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a <laughs> first lot of time the guys, I heard yeah. of the guy was yeah. in the magazine, Fine Woodworking, and yeah. all that. I told myself, well, I got I did hear of the show, but I never watched it. You know, this you is should. probably not I'll good to you, say. I'll tell you why I, you should. I, I make a point to watch it, but I keep forgetting. <laughs> I'll tell you why you should. It's because he plays a woodworker on the show, oh, and yeah? he talks about. Oh. You know, so, quilted, you know, oh, maple and burl and well, all and kinds of stuff. And he is a woodworker, so at least when he talks about it, he knows. Yeah, and he's had the show go to his shop, you know, uh -huh. because his character has a wood shop. And oh, it's uh -huh. funny, he's the one yeah. guy on comedy TV yeah. who chose woodworking in any way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he's well, carrying the torch for us woodworkers. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway. one thing I know is about TV shows. If you know anything about the subject, half the time the they, people, kill they, they don't know anything. Right. I, I was an auto mechanic for 40 years. Woodworking was just my hobby, you know. And, oh, the things I saw and heard about cars. Oh, whoo! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the same. Yeah. It's good. I have to watch it now that there's somebody on there talking about woodworking and right. knows what he's talking well, about. Well, you'll get to know him tonight, too, and then you won't feel like he's a stranger. But anyway, thanks for then coming. Then I'll have on. to watch the show. <laughs> yeah, then you have to. All right, well, uh, shall we wrap it up? Let's wrap it okay. up. Uh, all right, guys, we get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store every week, and as you all know, I like to acknowledge a few of the kind folks who give some encouragement up there. So here we go. Holry7778 wrote, Thanks, guys, for putting out the great content and useful tips. Keep them coming. These shows help pass the day as I work. From Tom Melcher, uh, he wrote in regarding our last show, Best podcast to date. Great mix of how-to, insight, and stories. Loved Asa's comment on giving up that shop time to his daughter. Believe me, it's worth it. My son loved banging hundreds of brads into two-by-fours as a youngster, and now that he's 30, I get to borrow his tools. <laughs> Red Stick Slim wrote, I really enjoy this podcast, seeing as how woodworking is mostly a solitary activity. It's great to hear other enthusiasts talking about it. Keep up the good work. The only way it could be better is if it were on every week. Thanks. And that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on August 17th for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes or stream it on your computer at finewoodworking.com slash blogs. Just click on the link to Shop Talk Live on the right-hand side of the page.